0: listening to a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So I should just give you a heads up here. The person from whom I really learned to read parables... Um, the parables of the kingdom as we have them tonight, but all of the parables in the New Testament is Robert Ferrer Capon, who from time to time you might have heard me cite. Uh, I, he will be cited this evening. These are, as I said, parables of the kingdom. That's Robert's characterization. We've been reading in those kingdom parables for a couple of weeks now. First, we had the parable of the sower who goes out to sow. Last week, we had the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And uh, as they're presented to us this evening, we have five quick parables. The kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. And the first two of those say something about the mystery of the kingdom The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field, Jesus says. Now, you probably know this, a mustard seed is tiny. Perhaps not the tiniest of all seeds, but certainly small enough to suit Jesus' teaching purposes. And, he says, it grows to be the greatest of shrubs. Now, that might cause you to pause for a moment. If you are a good prairie person, and you've ever driven on a highway outside of the city, you will have passed by a field of mustard, bright yellow. And it is not anything close to the size of a tree, not the greatest of shrubs, it's about this tall. But the thing is that Jesus isn't talking about domesticated mustard grown on the Manitoba prairies. He's talking about the sort of mustard that would have grown close to the Sea of Galilee, where he's been teaching, and which routinely grows to a height of 8 or 10 feet. So all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, tiny to large. I get it. I get the image. The point is that Jesus is promising a kingdom that begins very, very small, and that will grow into something very, very large, which is a point that is deepened and then nuanced when he turns to his second brief parable, this one about the yeast. The kingdom of heaven, he says, is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Notice, first of all, that Jesus is not shy at all about having a woman represent the the role of the father, the one who is going to dig and bury the yeast to grow. And because we don't really typically know anything about what a measure of flour would have been that he was talking about, we don't get the full scale of what he's saying here. As Robert Capon puts it, this is no slip of a girl making two tiny loaves for her husband's pleasure. This is a baker, folks. Three measures is a bushel of flour for crying out loud. That's 128 cups. That's 16 five pound bags. And when you're done putting in the 42 or so cups of water, you need to make it come together. You've got a little over 101 pounds of dough on your hands. When Jesus says the whole is leavened, he's not kidding. And that lump stands for the whole world. The world, in other words, is leavened in such a way that once the yeast goes to work, There's no way to stop it. Once the kingdom of God is at work in the world, at work in a way that is hidden, just as yeast is essentially hidden or dissolved into dough, well, its work is being done even if all we can do is trust that. So no sooner has he got the imaginations of these disciples spinning with the scale of that image of 101 pounds of dough, he's on to a couple more parables. This kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which someone will then turn around and do all that he can to put together the funds to buy that field. It's like a merchant who sells everything he has to purchase the one pearl of great price. It's worth everything. The kingdom is worth everything that we've got, in other words. Don't fuss around with any fearful anxieties about being a cautious investor, not when it comes to the kingdom that Jesus is inviting us into. The thing he calls the kingdom is worth our everything. Oh, and you'll not ever regret risking your all for it either, which is really the point of these two quick parables. Here, I I can imagine that the hearts and minds of those disciples are just spinning as the four little parables just add more and more to their understanding of who they're actually sitting with here. This Jesus is somehow at the very heart of the kingdom, right? And that's what you see in the Gospels. It's a gradual awakening in their somewhat thick heads to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. He's the promised one, the Messiah, the the bringer about of God's kingdom, right in their midst. It dawns on them awfully slowly And in Matthew's telling, it will be another full three chapters later that Peter finally has the courage to say out loud, Well, Jesus said to them, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And even at that, Peter finally managing to come forth with this, this, this confession, you can see the light kind of dawning in his eyes. He will still slip and stumble and not quite get right what the fullness of Jesus' life and death ultimately mean for the world. But Back to today's gospel. After those four quick parables comes one more. This one has a tougher edge. You might have heard it as Gilbert read. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that's thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. And So it will be at the end of the age the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now remember, he's talking to a group that includes a good many folks who have made a living fishing. So they know something about nets and what gets pulled up when you're out to catch decent fish, good fish. Interestingly, the original Greek doesn't even use the word fish. They caught fish of every kind. But instead it uses the Greek word genos, which means something closer to breed or species. Those nets hauled up bottom feeders and shellfish, considered out of bounds for a kosher diet, and all manner of detrius from the bottom of the sea. Of course, along with that comes up the lovely fish that they'd set out to catch in the first place. So now the sorting begins. They keep the good, he says, but throw away the bad, in Greek the sapra or rotten This then moves to its parabolic climax, which says that at the end of the age, the angels will come and divide the evil from the righteous, tossing the evil or the wicked into the furnace of fire. Do you understand all of this? Jesus asked them. And they're nodding their heads all around. Yeah, yeah, we get it. And I heard the laughter kind of go through the congregation. Because what what did they actually understand? Did they think that that they had to somehow count themselves among the righteous, paying extra attention to the demands of the Torah, line themselves up to be the righteous characters who will one day sit at his right and his left-hand side in the kingdom when the sorting work is done by the angels? If that's where they'd landed themselves, and in all likelihood they had, then what they needed was a serious dose of their teacher's passion, death, resurrection, and ascension. And probably a good solid dose of the proclamation that St. Paul will ultimately bring to the world and to the church. Paul, of course, is not at all persuaded that any one of us can be righteous not on our own steam, but rather that we are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's not about earning something, behaving somehow, being righteous. It's about accepting the fact that we are simply given this gift and receive it. To cite Robert Capon once again, we are not judged by our previous performances. Rather, we are judged by what Jesus did for us on the cross. He pronounces an authoritative good over the whole world that he's caught in the net of his reconciliation. But, you might ask, what about that stuff, all the extra stuff, the shellfish and the bottom feeders and the suckers and the blah that got caught in the net from the bottom, the stuff that is deemed sapra or rotten by Matthew as he retells this story. And here I offer one final insight from Father Capon. It is only those who want to argue with that gracious word that word of acceptance, that word of grace. Only those who want to argue with that gracious word who are then pronounced bad. Both heaven and hell are populated entirely and only by forgiven sinners. Hell is just a courtesy for those who insist they want no part of forgiveness. Remember the parable of the prodigal the father extends that enormous grace and mercy to the son who'd run off and lost everything brings him in and the party begins and the older son sulks in the garden unable to accept the grace has been offered that lowlife loser of a brother of his when he's behaved so well and the father comes out and says come in Come in And of course, the only party he can come into is the one at which his brother is also present. Hell is just a courtesy. The garden where they stay in sulk is just a courtesy for those who insist they want no part of forgiveness. And speaking for myself, I most definitely want a part of that forgiveness. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church and to access the full catalog of our podcasts going all the way back to 2006, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. In addition, if you are interested in supporting our online work, you can find information on the website using the Donate button located on the top right-hand corner. Thanks for listening.